Well, good morning. What a beautiful spring day, and it's the Lord's Day, too. And uh, if you're able to join us for the tailgate party afterwards, we'll love hanging out with you today. And for those at home, would you just welcome them? They're part of our family. Let them know you love them. They tell me how much your greeting means to them and feeling a part of this church family. And those at home, if they can come hang out with us outdoors today, we'd love that too. Well, if you turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30, and as you know by now, our series title for today and next Sunday only is Foolproof, God's Wisdom in Proverbs. And I, for one, am thankful that we're through the random part of the book, chapter 10 through 29, where the Proverbs are random on all different types of topics, because I'm looking forward to getting back to teaching through it verse by verse sequentially, rather than me having to organize it into categories topically. Um, I'm really thankful. And so... Today we're going to be in chapter 30, next week chapter 31, and that'll be the end of our series. And then the week after that, we're going to start a new series in First and Second Peter. So I think it's a, it's a timely, relevant message for us today and the trying times we live in. So um, as you come to these last two chapters of Proverbs, you might just feel like they're kind of an appendix or a postscript. They're not even written by the main guy, Solomon. They're written, they're penned by a couple other authors, writers, and, and so you might just kind of dismiss them as like an appendix, but they're, I hope what you'll see this morning is they're filled with rich meaning and truth. And, and I've really grown to love uh, Proverbs 30 this week. I always focus on 31, but Proverbs 30 this week as, uh, as I dug into it and really studied through it. So I hope you'll be blessed by these t- next two chapters. Uh, so with that in mind, the message title this morning is Knowledge of God. The text is Proverbs chapter 30. And this is written by a man named Agur. And we're going to see two parts of this. Agur's humble evaluation in verses 1 through 9. And Agur's wise observations in verses 10 through 33. So with that, we'll start with his humble evaluation in verse 1 of, of Proverbs chapter 30. So it reads, the sayings of Agur son of J.K., an oracle. This man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel and to Ucal. Ucal, not, not like the University of California, but a guy named Ucal, not a popular baby name today, nor Agur. Uh, we don't even know who Agur is. There's no other mention of him in scripture. And history, archeologists haven't uncovered anything uh, in history yet that tells us any more about him. He's kind of unknown other than what we read right here. But his name is kind of appropriate. It means collector. And what he did, he observed the world around him and he collected his thoughts and he wrote them down into sayings, uh, writings, proverbs that he collected. And even though we don't know him, the spirit of God felt it right to include these proverbs in God's inspired word. They're part of the canon of scripture. And so, as we look at these sayings, um, we might not know Agur, 
But these are more than just his writings because verse one refers to them as an oracle. And an oracle is a prophetic message. It's basically a message from God through man and delivered to us. And we're gonna talk more about God's method of revealing truth to us as we get into it. So as I said, these are part of God's inspired word. Yet, look what he says in verse two. He says, I am the most ignorant of men. I do not have a man's understanding. That's remarkable for a man writing Proverbs, which are little wisdom statements. Um, Listen to this verse in the ESV. It says, surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. So how's that for a life verse? Macho men, our men's Bible study, or guys, a life verse. I'm too stupid to be a man. Claim that one. (laughs) Own it. Well, we, we probably shouldn't make any sweeping comparisons between this and Proverbs 31 and the wife of noble character. You know, you got like the wife of noble character and the stupid man. <laughs> that's, that's not what it's saying. There's enough stupidity to go around both men and women. We all own it. I kind of like the, the story of when uh, before the fall and Adam's walking with God, with God in the garden in the cool of the morning. And he asked God, he said, God, why did you make the woman? And God says, well, Adam, I made her to be your partner, your completer. And he says, oh. And they walk a little further and and Adam says, well, God, why did you make the woman so lovely, so beautiful, so soft? And God says, well, Adam, I did that so that you would love her. He says, oh. And then they go a little further and Adam says, well, God, why did you make the woman so stupid? And God says, I did that so that she would love you. (laughs) So there's enough stupidity to go around. We're not picking on just men or women here. But Edgar, he says, I am too stupid to be a man. Well, what's up with that? Look at verse 3. He says, I have not learned wisdom, nor, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. And so in this verse, it shows us the relationship between stupidity and not knowing God. Now, the highest knowledge a man can obtain is the knowledge of God. Remember back in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It starts there. And, and listen to what the prophet Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 9. It says, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, the living God. It's the most important thing. It's the highest form of knowledge to know God. Now, if that's the highest form of knowledge, then the highest ignorance, it seems, would be to not know God. It doesn't matter how educated a person is, how many degrees they have. A person can be highly educated and still be a fool. Listen to what 2 Timothy 3.7 says. It speaks to those who are always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. So they have all these advanced degrees, all of this education, but if they don't know God, they don't have a knowledge of the truth. It's the highest form of ignorance. 
Let me read you what J.I. Packer says. He wrote this in his book appropriately titled Knowing God. He says, knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfold as it were with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. That's a pretty good description of a person who doesn't know God. They're blindfolded, stumbling through life because on the other hand, you can have no formal education at all. You can be an ordinary person, never been to, maybe you didn't finish high school, maybe you didn't go to college, but if you know God, you have a greater knowledge than even the most educated unbeliever because to know God is the highest form of knowledge. Let me illustrate that for you out of scripture in Acts chapter four. It's right after chapter two where God gives his spirit to the believers and the church is birthed. And Peter and John, they're standing up and they're boldly speaking to the rulers, the government leaders, and the religious leaders. Now remember, who were they? They were ordinary fishermen. And, and they're speaking out boldly. And in Acts chapter four, verse 13, it says, when they, the rulers and the religious leaders, saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were ordinary, unschooled men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Think about that, unschooled, ordinary men who'd been with Jesus. That's quite a resume, isn't it? You see, God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. We talked about that two weeks ago, didn't we? The foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Do you wanna have the highest knowledge obtainable? The highest knowledge. Do you wanna understand the world around you? Then get to know Jesus. Get to know him, spend time with him. Jason taught last week on the Good Shepherd. He says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. They know his voice. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him personally? That's what God wants because if we don't know the Lord, God created this world and he rules this world. And so if we don't know God, we have a distorted understanding of everything around us and we've sealed our fate for all eternity. The highest knowledge is to know God. Now, if that is the highest knowledge to know God and the greatest ignorance would be to not know God, then I would say this, the greatest sin would be to know something about God and yet ignore him, to not recognize his place in your life, to reject him. Listen to what Romans 1 says. I'll read you verses 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their, few, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. There will be some very educated men and women standing before the Lord one day in judgment. And they might argue with him, but God, look at my resume, look at my credentials. I've got a PhD in astrophysics and molecular biology. I was top of my class, God. And what will Jesus say? Depart from me. I did not know you. How smart will they look on that day? 
Not very. The highest knowledge is to know God. So what do we make of this agar? He says in verse three, I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. He didn't yet, because of his humility, he's in a perfect position to be used by God. Remember we said last week that humility is a prerequisite to salvation because a self-righteous person doesn't see his own sin and his need for a savior. But Agar was, was humble. And listen to what Jesus said. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit is to recognize who you are morally bankrupt, weak, and completely dependent upon God for forgiveness, for righteousness, for wisdom. We have to recognize who God is and who we are. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, to really evaluate ourselves and have this overwhelming sense of how morally bankrupt we are. And Jesus says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, the world would look at Agar and say, your problem is you don't have enough self-esteem. You've got low self-esteem. You need to build your confidence. I don't think the world, and, and, to a large extent, needs more self-esteem. You know what I think the world needs? A broken spirit and a contrite heart that humbles themselves before a holy God and recognizes that they too are ignorant and morally bankrupt. That's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. So Agar is humble. He recognizes this and that's the starting point for attaining wisdom and the ultimate knowledge, the knowledge of God. So verse four, he asks these questions. Who's gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered up the wind in the hollow of his hands? Who has wrapped up the waters in his cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and the name of his son? Tell me if you know. Agar poses these five questions and they're all rooted in his observation of the world around him. He sees the heavens and the earth and they tell him something about God. And he knows from what he sees that there's someone behind it. Notice I said someone, not something behind it. He knows that there's someone behind it. Look at his questions. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered up the wind in the hollow of his hand? Who has wrapped up the waters in his cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and the name of his son? Agar knows that there's someone behind all of this and he, and he wants to know him. This is the opposite of the ways of the world. The world is doing everything it can to convince you that there is no God, there is no creator. It just all happened on its own through random occurrences of fortuitous circumstances. It just came into being on its own. It goes against all science but yet they call it science. And they, they declare that if you don't agree with that, then you're simple-minded, ignorant. You're, you're a, you deny science. Well, here's their reason for doing that. See, if they can convince you that there is no creator, then there is no purpose for the creation. And if there's no purpose for the creation, then there's no rules for the creatures. And if there's no rules, then guess what? Man gets to make up his own rules. He essentially makes himself out to be God. 
he can do whatever he wants. That's what they're driving for. And I don't think anybody has said it better than Fyodor Dostoyevsky. That's harder than Kormshikov, uh, uh, one of our missionaries. Uh, Dostoyevsky, a Russian philosopher, and he's a Christian, and he said it this way. He said, if God does not exist, everything is permissible. Bingo, that's what they want. Man becomes God, man makes the rules. Don't fall into the world's trap. So Agur looks at the world around him, and he, in his humility, realizes this is saying something about God. Creation is saying something about God. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. And Romans 1.20, back to Romans 1 for a minute, it says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, they have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Creation tells us something about God. Now, Frank Borman, he was the commander of Apollo 8. That was the first manned spacecraft to leave the orbit of Earth and go out and orbit around the moon. And they took this famous picture called Earthrise. Imagine seeing the Earth rise over the horizon of the moon. The Apollo 8 capsule is sitting in the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. You can see it. And remember what he did as they were orbiting on, and they had him on live TV that night? He read Genesis chapter 1, the creation account. It went out on live TV. Now, the atheist Marilyn Madeline O'Hare, she sued the government for allowing him to proselytize from a government finance spacecraft. The the Supreme Court rejected her argument, but nonetheless, she tried to shut that down. But Frank Borman said, I'm looking out the window and I'm seeing the heavens and the earth and they tell me there is a God. He said this, I had an enormous feeling that there had to be a power greater than any of us, that there was a God and and that there was indeed a beginning. See, that's, a, that's recognizing who God is and who we are in, in comparison. So the heavens and earth tell us something about God. It's, it's known as general revelation. And that's the things that, the truths that can be known from creation itself. They can tell us some things about God, that he's big, that he's powerful, that he's glorious, But as marvelous as general revelation is, it doesn't tell us anything about God's purpose for the creation. Or it doesn't tell us much about his character and it doesn't tell us anything about his plan of salvation. So Eger asks, who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered up the, the wind in his hand? He goes on, who is this God? What is his name and who is his son? Does that strike you as funny that he asks about his son? This is 900 to 1,000 years before Christ was born. How did he know he had a son? What well, doesn't tell us, but 
I gather that the Spirit of God evoked this understanding and this question within him because there's a passage in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11 to tell us that the prophets, when they were prophesying, the Spirit of God showed them that the very words they were prophesying pointed to a future Messiah. And so they longed to understand the times and the circumstances to which it was pointing when the Spirit spoke these things through them. And it says they knew that they weren't serving themselves but you, those who would come later when they prophesied these things. So I believe it was the Spirit of God that placed this on uh, Agar's heart. And so he talks about the Son of God. I find that fascinating. But observation cannot answer these questions about God, nor can general revelation. It requires God's special revelation. What is special revelation? Well, it is God revealing himself to mankind through supernatural means. Let me read you Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two. It says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophet at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's special revelation. God spoke through the prophets. He spoke through his son. But there's just one problem. We weren't there to hear any of those, were we? We didn't hear the prophets. We weren't there to hear Jesus as he spoke to the, to the people. But... His words, the words of the prophets, the words of Jesus himself were preserved for us. Matthew 24 verse 35 says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. It's referring to the word of God, the Bible. We have it here. And the Bible is part of God's special revelation to us. It was delivered to mankind through supernatural means and it was supernaturally preserved for us and it'll never pass away. So with that in mind, listen to what Eger says next in verse five. Every word of God is flawless. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. So Eger says, every word of God is flawless. David said a similar thing in, in Psalm 19.7. He said, the law of the Lord is perfect. In other words, it's pure. It lacks nothing. It's perfect. It's complete. Maybe you've heard the, the phrase, the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that you'll never need any other book to get through life. Because Scripture doesn't teach us math. It doesn't teach us how to treat physical ailments. It doesn't, a little bit back then, but it doesn't teach us science. It doesn't teach us how to fix our car. I mean, for that, we have YouTube, right? <laughs> we can Google it. That's, that's a revelation, I guess. But scripture doesn't teach those things. It's not saying it's the only book you'll ever need. Sufficiency of scripture means that the word of God gives us everything we need to understand how to glorify God through a life of faith and godliness. There's no other revelation required. The scripture is complete. It's sufficient. It's flawless. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17 is one of the verses I noted up there, as well as Psalm 19, uh, 2 Peter 1, 3. You can look at those that speak of the sufficiency of Scripture. And, and verse 5 also says, he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. 
See, God, through his word, his personal revelation to you will protect those who trust in him. It's not enough to just believe in his flawless word. We have to trust in it. Uh, Barb has a saying that I love, run to truth. Run to the truth of God's word. It's a shield, it's a protection for us. And so that's what Eger's saying. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. His word is the means, it's flawless. So then verse six gives us this warning. Do not add to his words. Don't add to his words. And we see several other warnings like this in the Bible. Deuteronomy 12, 32. Way back in the Old Testament it says, see that you do all I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. And we see a similar warning in Revelation 22. Don't add to my word. Don't take away from it. It's complete. Yet, what's the fundamental error of almost every cult out there? Adding to or taking away from the word of God to support their own cause. It's common. The Mormons, put your, hat in a, put your head in a hat with some stones and you come out with new revelation. The Book of Mormon. The Jehovah's Witnesses, adding to or taking away from the word of God. Church of Scientology. Christian science. It's neither Christian nor science. These are people who add to or take away from the word of God. And we're warned not to do that. It's complete. But there are other ways that Christians, too, can add to the word of God. I feel that sometimes intellectuals and scholars, they mean well, but they try to weave together some pattern or some theological codec in Scripture that reveals a hidden meaning. And it makes them look super intelligent. Like, we need them to really understand this. And it it probably sells a lot of books and commentaries. But God warns us about adding to scripture in that way too. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 warns Christian teachers do not go beyond what is written. In other words, don't be trying with your intellect to find some secret code in here that says something that's not plain in scripture. Paul says, I preach Christ crucified. That's his formula. We need to teach the plain, simple, clear meaning of scripture. It doesn't mean that we don't need expository teaching to help us grasp and understand it, but we shouldn't be trying to weave and piece together some new revelation from the hidden basement of scripture. We have to be careful of that. So, what we see next in this text is a beautiful prayer coming from the heart of this humble man, Agur. Listen to what he says in verse seven. Two things I ask of you, Lord, do not rebuke me, or do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Agur pleads with God for two things. In this life. Notice he says, do not refuse me before I die. He's not talking about the life to come. He's talking about right here now. Don't refuse me. He pleads with God, number one, for personal integrity. See, he knew that God was a God of truth and honesty and virtue. And he's saying, God, keep falsehood and lies far from me. Don't let me be characterized by that. Let me be, help me be a man of integrity. 
That was his first request. And then secondly, he pleads with God to give him neither poverty nor riches. He knew that either extreme could cause him to dishonor the name of God. If he's poor, he might steal. If he's rich, he might say, who's the Lord? Now for people to say, God, don't make me too poor. That's pretty easy to do, isn't it? How many of you have prayed, God, don't make me too rich? God, I don't know about that pay raise. I'm not sure that that's you, that that's good for me. Have you ever thought about that? That'd be a little harder, wouldn't it? God, don't make me too rich. Because if I'm too rich, I might deny you, I might disown you, I might dishonor your name. You see, I think that prosperity is more dangerous than poverty. And what we see in scripture is that material prosperity often leads to spiritual poverty. That's because with prosperity, we can so easily become distracted from the things of the Lord, from the things that matter. We're now all where your treasure is, there's your heart. And so we're totally distracted from that. And as our spiritual life spirals down, we, in our brokenness, can view our prosperity as God's approval of our life and what we're doing. And so it just continues an ever-increasing spiral downward. Prosperity is dangerous. It's been said prosperity is like a drug that puts the soul to sleep. I believe that's true. Listen to what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea. He says, you say I am rich. I I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. See their own appraisal themselves. I'm rich. I'm wealthy. I don't need anything. Jesus says, "Mm -hmm. (laughs) you are wretched. You're poor. You're naked. You're bankrupt morally. But you think you're rich. That's a dangerous state. He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Material prosperity often leads to spiritual poverty. And so Agur says, don't make me rich, Lord, and don't make me poor. Rather, give me just enough, just what I need, my daily bread. There's nothing wrong with having a savings for retirement. But Agur says, man, you give me too much, Lord, it'll lead me astray. What a beautiful prayer and a request coming from this humble man. We're starting to see wisdom in his words, aren't we? He humbled himself before the Lord. And that's the beginning of wisdom. So let's look secondly then at Agur's wise observations now. We've seen his humble evaluation. Let's look at his wise observations. Beginning in verse 10. Do not slander a servant Uh, to his master, or he will curse you and you will pay for it. Well, to slander someone means to make a false accusation against someone, to malign them. We should never do that, not even to the lowest of employees, like a servant, what they would call a servant then. We should never malign them. It's not right in God's eyes. And then next, we're going to see four statements about Uh, what he notes is a foolish and sinful generation. Verse 11, there are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. 
those who are pure in their own eyes and yet are not cleansed of their filth, those whose eyes are ever so haughty, whose, whose glances are so disdainful, those whose teeth are swords and whose jaws are set with knives to devour the poor from the earth, the needy from among mankind. Now, I'm working out of the NIV, and four times it says there are those. But, and that's what the ESV says too, but if you go to the New King James Version, it says there is a generation four times. And I think that's a better translation of the Hebrew word because the sense of the word is a period of time related to a group of people. A generation's perfect. And this idea of a generation uh, points to the fact that the fact that sin can so easily permeate through an entire society. And we just sang in our song, didn't we? Let me be a generation of reconciliation and peace. We want that to spread. Sin can spread just as easily through a, a whole society. Let me give you a couple examples in the book of Judges. Remember, God had just brought his people into the promised land. It was the best of times. And Judges then has this tragic opening in chapter two. It says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, they died, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Worship pagan gods, sacrifice their children. A whole generation was was tainted, corrupted completely by sin. So this idea of a generation, it speaks to cultural influences that cause the rapid spread of sin and the decay of our society. Look at what Eger says. He says they curse their fathers and mothers. They're self-deceived about their sin, thinking they're righteous when they're not. They're filthy. They're arrogant. They're sharp-tongued. This reminds me, once again, of Romans chapter one. Let me take you back there for a moment and read you a little more about this generation in Romans one, a generation that, that knew God, but rejected him and his place in their lives. It says in Romans chapter one, beginning of verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to, to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, it goes on. Verse 28, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They became filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. I run out of fingers. <laughs> they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decrees, and that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. 
They do evil and they promote it. This is our generation, guys. We're in one of these generations right now. Just, just look at people like the Hollywood elites that are practicing and promoting all kinds of evil and perversion. And then they speak out and say, you're full of hate. And you're the bigots. They're, they're, they're righteous in their own eyes, but they're full of filth. We're not perfect either, but this is a generation that denies God. They have no knowledge of God. We're living in one of those times right now. And so we have to resist the temptation to conform to the pattern of this world. Well, Eger continues. He says in verse 15, the leech has two daughters. Give, give, they cry. Leeches, they're common in and around Palestine. They live in the waters there. And so when a person or an animal goes down in the water to drink or to bathe, they attach themselves to the ankles. To animals drinking water, they attach themselves to their mouth and they start drawing the blood out of that animal. Leeches. And so I believe what leeches used to symbolize here is a greedy person. A greedy person's always thirsty for more. They're never satisfied. And it says they will have kids who are never satisfied either. The leech has two daughters. Again, it's a sign of a generation that's addicted to material things. I need more, I need more. I can never get enough. And Eger, he's still pondering all this when he turns his attention to some other things he sees out in the world, some other examples of an insatiable desire. He says in verse 15, continuing in verse 15, there are three things that are never satisfied, four that never say enough. The grave, the barren woman, land, which is never satisfied with water, and fire, which never says enough. Now, it wasn't like this, I don't believe, before the fall. There was no death, we know that for sure. There was, I don't think there was any barren women. God said, be fruitful and multiply. The earth, it didn't dry up. We didn't have deserts because it says the earth was watered from springs which flowed out of the earth. It didn't suck in the rain and dry up shortly after. And, and fire, if there was fire, it wasn't destructive. It didn't take the life of animals and plants and people like it does today. So these are kind of things that came after the fall. But now, in a fallen world, there's this hunger and thirst that'll never be satisfied, can never get enough. But for those who hunger and thirst for something different, not material possessions, for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, God says, you will be satisfied. He promises that. Mick Jagger, I can't get no satisfaction. God says, you, followers of Christ, will be satisfied. Matthew 5, 6. So he goes on, verse 17, the eye that mocks a father that scorns obedience to a mother will be pecked out by the ravens of the valley, will be eaten by the vultures. I don't have any visual on <laughs> pictures of this one for you. It's pretty graphic. But what is it saying? It's saying that this evil generation will face judgment. Simple as that. And then he shifts his focus from the wicked 
the wickedness of a generation to some of the wonders of creation. Look at verse 18. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a maiden. Now, you'll see this pattern four times in this chapter. There are three things, even four. What he's saying is, it's a specific list, but it's not exhaustive. There's, it's like saying, it's a figure of speech back then. It's like saying there's three or four or more. But these, these are three of them, and, and it's not just three or just four, but it's an example of what you see. So there's three or four. And I like what he says about the eagle. Is the way of an eagle in the sky. Now, not only an eagle, but a snake on a rock, a ship on the high seas, and a man with a maiden. People speculate about what do these things have in common? What is he saying here? And I was really meditating and praying on this this week. This is what I think they have in common is there's an invisible force that propels them. And it's this marvelous wonder of God's creation. Let me kind of break it down for you. He talks about an eagle in the sky. An eagle doesn't just fly. An eagle soars. An eagle spreads its wings and allows the air currents to carry it aloft. Sometimes those air currents are orthographic lift. It's like wind blowing up a slope or a mountain and it rises and the eagle is in that air mass and rises with it. Other times it's convective lift where the the sun heats the ground unevenly and the warm areas warm the air and warm air is lighter so it rises. And you get these rising columns of air that we call thermals. And you see the birds circling together in these columns of air and rising the way of an eagle. I like that because back before I I, uh, flew airplanes, I started flying gliders or sailplanes. And a sailplane rides on the air currents just like an eagle. And it's, it's the most beautiful thing. I love soaring. And I've flown a sailplane to over 21,000 feet in thermals, convective lift. We were on oxygen all day. We never got below 15,000 feet. And I've gone more than 300 miles in a single day, cross country, without a motor. All riding these air currents. And there have been times where um, I've had a bird, a hawk or another soaring bird, fly in formation with me just off the leading edge of the wing, like six feet away, and just mirror my every movement. We were soaring together. It was awesome. And then there were other times where I was going cross country, and I was in desperate need of some altitude. And I was low, about to have to make a forced landing. One time over Johnson City, Texas, the rugged country, I look out, I'm down low like 700 feet, and I look out, and there's a hawk, and I thought, maybe he's got some lift over there, and I go over to that hawk, and he had some lift, and I started circling with this hawk, went up to 10,000 feet, made my way home with ease. These these birds are amazing aviators, and so I love where it talks about soaring, and I love the verse that speaks of rising up on wings like eagles. You know, if you really want to experience that, go soaring sometime. Go fly in a sailplane. It is, it is awesome. Talk to me later. I'll talk your ear off about soaring. But anyway, the way of an eagle in the sky. You can't see these currents that are propelling it. It's an invisible force that's propelling it. 
Similar thing with the snake. You don't see a snake reach out its arms and grab the rock and pull itself along. It just like glides across the rock, doesn't it? Or a ship on the high sea. We know the wind moves it along, but you can't see it. It just propels it along. And then there's this one, the way of a man with a maiden. It's talking about you know, romantic love and this invisible force that causes us guys to say and do all kinds of crazy things, doesn't it? Write love songs and buy all kinds of little gifts and just kind of like get a little gaga. Now, it's not speaking of it in an unhealthy way. It's talking about the beauty of God's romantic love, virtuous love. And so you can't see this thing, you can't measure it, you can't take a test and go, he's in love. No, no, but you can observe it, it's like an invisible force. So Agar is looking at these things, and it's not magic, but it's marvelous. And he's marveling at God's wondrous creation. Look Look at this, what God has done. Well, contrast this, virtuous way of a man with a maiden to what comes next, verse 20, the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. This is a person living in sin but insisting that she's doing nothing wrong. It's okay, we love each other. Everyone does this, it's normal. But here, this type of adultery really corrupted love is compared to little more than a cheap meal to satisfy one's appetite, junk food. And she wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. But the fact is, adultery is a sin, first of all, against God, and then against one's spouse and against one's family. It's even a sin against one's very own body, scripture tells us. Sexual sin is a sin against our own body. And, and sin, tears apart the very social structure that God established for society, this type of sexual sin. So, he goes on, verse 21. Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. A servant who becomes king, a fool who is full of food, an unloved woman who is married, and a maidservant who displaces her mistress. John MacArthur says this, he says, society is greatly agitated when normal roles are overturned. And that's what we see here with servants reigning and fools made rich and hated women being married and maid servants becoming wives. God often overturns the normal course of things in our world. Think about Jacob, sold into slavery, rose to become a ruler in the nation of Egypt. Or about Leah, the unloved one who became the wife. God often overturns the normal order of things. Verse 24, four things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. Conies, or marmots, are creatures of little power, yet they make their home in the crags. Locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. And a lizard can be caught with the hand, yet he's found in king's palaces. He's looking at all these things and going, this is amazing. These these display the wonders of God's creation. How tragic it is for those who see 
this incredible beauty, this amazing design in creation, and yet have nothing to attribute it to but the random cause, fortuitous occurrences of accidental circumstances. It just came into existence on its own. I watch like the Discovery Channel or Animal Planet and you even hear them say things like, this animal is a marvel of design. They talk about the tuna as being the most perfectly designed fish as far as like aquadynamics, the way it can move through the water. They're like marveling at this and then they have nothing to attribute it to other than random chance. Now they try to make it personal so they whip up the idea of mother nature or mother earth and that's who's responsible for this remarkable creation. You see, they wanna deny the creator or they wanna choose to ignore him. But when you do know God, you can have an even greater appreciation of all of these things that we see out in creation. You can look at them and say, God, you're awesome. Look at your amazing handiwork. Look at the beauty, it's marvelous. And you know when you do that, when you acknowledge the work of God, what are you doing? You're worshiping him. That's what worship looks like. God, I see all of this. And it's beautiful. It's awesome. So, a couple more observations and we'll bring this to a close. Verse 29. There are three things that are stately in their stride. Four that move with stately bearing. A lion, mighty among beasts, who retreats before nothing, a strutting rooster, they can be really cocky, (laughs) no pun intended, a strutting rooster, a he-goat, and a king with his army around him. So here he's making more observations and what he's seeing in each of these four is examples of majesty, a lion, a, 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 a ruler with an army around him, it's majestic. And then he closes his writing with this. He says, if you have played the fool and exalted yourself, or if you've planned evil, clap your hand over your mouth. In other words, stop it. (laughs) Knock it off, shut up. (laughs) Quit doing that, repent. Change your mind, change what you're doing. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. That's what we studied two weeks ago, right? Here's Agur, humble before the Lord. And he says this final verse 33, for as churning the milk produces butter and as twisting the nose produces blood, so stirring up anger produces strife. He's talking about a cause and and effect relationship. If you do this, this is what's gonna happen. If you're arrogant and you don't humble yourself before the Lord, you're gonna be an ignorant fool. You're gonna be an enemy of God. He's going to oppose you. He opposes the proud. He mocks mockers, but he gives grace to the humble. And so his concluding advice is we should strive for peace and harmony with God and with one another through two things, through humility and through righteousness. You see the progression of this Eger's understanding? 
He was humble. He goes, I, I'm ignorant in comparison to God. And God begins to pour his wisdom in, into him. He sees the beauty of his creation, this general revelation. He acknowledges the word of God as flawless, God's special revelation. And God begins to pour his wisdom into him. And here we have his writings as part of the word of God, inspired by God himself. So he wasn't a king or a prince or even a scholar, I don't think. He was just an ordinary man who had a humble evaluation of himself. Remember we said that humility is a prerequisite for salvation because a proud, self-righteous person sees no need for a savior, doesn't see his own condition, his moral bankruptcy. So he's a humble man. He was poor in spirit. And true to his word, God gave him wisdom. He lifted him up. Wisdom to understand the world around him, the general revelation, the special revelation. But there were still things Agur didn't understand. He still had questions. He asked, who's gone up into heaven and come down? What is his name and the name of his son? See, we have the privilege of a complete revelation. That revelation was still in process for Agur. He knew they were pointing to something glorious, a future Messiah, but he didn't know the details of it. We do. It's right here in our word. And the most marvelous part is that this same God that made this amazing, wondrous creation came down into his creation, walked among us, came into our little casket of sin and death and gave his life so that we might be reconciled to a holy God. The same creator, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that had been made. And in him was was life, and that life was the light of man. And he came into the world and his own people, but his people rejected him. Yet, to all who received him, every single one who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What an awesome God we have. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is no God like you, no God like our God, as we sung, Lord. You're all-knowing, you're all-powerful, yet you're completely righteous and holy. You're perfect in all of your ways. And so, God, we just marvel at who you are and at what you've done. God, humble us where there's pride in our hearts. Make us humble, God, that we could see our desperate need for you, that we could open ourselves up to your wisdom, come to an end of ourselves and seek your wisdom in our lives, God. Wisdom that transforms us, the highest attainable knowledge, the knowledge of God. And so, God, we worship you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.